Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Backchat. If the nature podcast is Pluto, now in full Technicolor, then Backchat is its moon, Sharon, orbiting the main event and vying for your attention. In Backchat, we reflect on the biggest science stories each month and our reporters get to tell you what they really think of them. I'm Kerry Smith and joining me in the studio in London, I have Lizzie Gibney. Hello, I'm Lizzie. I write about physics from our office in London. And Richard Van Norden joins us. Hi, I edit Nature's online news from London. And on the line from Boulder, Colorado, we have reporter Alex Witsey. Yes, hi. I cover Earth and planetary sciences from my home here in Colorado. Coming up, it's everyone's favourite dwarf planet. We've got better pictures than ever before of Pluto. So Pluto is getting a starring role in Backchat this month. We'll also be talking about science teaching. Do you remember university lectures fondly or did you sleep through most of them? And what do we know about the science of science teaching? And I'm also looking forward to discussing how to go to space without actually going to space clue you'll need some scuba gear plus the rich donor who's keen to keep listening for aliens now first the big science news event this month was of course the new horizons spacecraft reaching pluto's neighborhood taking some snaps and then carrying on on its solar system safari Uh, alex you went to new horizons hq didn't you to watch the scientists who were watching the spacecraft did you have a nice time I did. I just got back from a week at the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab, which is a long name for a research lab sort of in the the outer suburbs of Washington, D.C. And that's where the spacecraft was built and where the spacecraft is operated from. Plenty of excitement, I suppose, as the spacecraft um, did its flyby and came out the other side. Yes, absolutely. So, So as you know, this was the first time we've ever sent a spacecraft to Pluto. And it was one of those quick flyby visits, which is what we typically do the first time we go to, to any planet. Um, so it was, you know, nine years traveling there and then sort of an action-packed 24 hours when the spacecraft whizzed by super fast and just went, you know, click, 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 click as it went past Pluto. And uh, all the mission scientists and mission engineers, it was a very tense moment because we didn't know until after it had all happened whether or not the flyby had happened successfully and of course it did it phoned home and it's sending back fabulous pictures of Pluto. And if there's anyone who hasn't seen the main image of Pluto we've got one here on the desk with us so we can describe it It sort of looks like I don't know an old billiard ball that got stuck in a bit of mud at some point with this kind of light um, heart-shaped pattern on the side of it. It's, It's very beautiful. 
Yeah, so the heart is wonderful, of course. So it's a very, uh, it's a reddish world. Uh, it's kind of a, you know, dusty looking red. It's got dark bits and light bits, and you can see craters here and craters there. But surprisingly, there's not nearly as many craters as scientists would have thought. Because Pluto is so far out there in the solar system, they thought it would have been battered for billions of years and that it would be just kind of this ancient cratery thing. Kind of like if you think, if you look at the moon, if you look at the moon in the night sky, it's kind of a gray, beat up, boring thing. Um, but Pluto is really vibrant. It must have some kind of active geology. They found ice mountains and these giant plains with these funny polygonal features on them. I love the idea of these ice mountains, though. It's a bit like Mordor or something. Richard, you look about to speak. Well, was it a bit difficult covering this? There was a countdown when you were there, but it was kind of a countdown with nothing happening because it was kind of like we're here for hours and here's what will be happening, although we can't get any communications about it. So all the excitement was sort of in a in a vacuum. Yeah, well, so, I mean, Lizzie knows about this too, right? When you're communicating with, you know, spacecraft that are at some, you know, distance in terms of communications, first of all, you've got just that round trip light time. So you're like, well, the spacecraft should be flying by right now. You know, we don't really know, but it should be flying by right now. And, th and then you've got the whole question of when do you actually have communications pass with the spacecraft, which in the case of Pluto, they decided not to keep communicating with Earth because they would have to turn around and like call Earth and then turn back and look at Pluto. So they made this deliberate decision not to not to look back. And so it was out. Yeah, it was out of touch for nearly 24 hours. And it is a bit it feels a bit artificial and weird, right, to think about what is happening, you know, five billion kilometers away, but we can't see it. And so I mean, Lizzie, you know, you went through that too with the Rosetta landing. Absolutely. For, for the Rosetta trip, it was about 28 minutes, I think was the lag. So it's perhaps a little bit shorter because you're because with Pluto it was what, four, four hours, something like that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> just for the signal to go one way. So, yeah, you, then it was like just enough time to build up the tension and cause a bit of drama. And then you got the answer. But, yeah, it must have been a bit difficult. How long was your day when you were there reporting, Alex? Well, it was long. I mean, I got there at 530 in the morning and we left at 1030 at night. But, um, you know, that was that was kind of par for the course for the for the day. So um, but it was super exciting. Of course, there's always sort of orchestrated drama, right? There's somebody decides to play the final countdown in the background and then someone counts down. And of course, they start the countdown from nine, right? Pluto, potentially, as they as they want to call it, the ninth planet, and it is stage managed to a certain extent. But to be there, you know, near the mission control and to see these engineers who've been flying this space robot across the solar system, it was it really was different for me than than Mar even the Mars missions I've been to, shuttle launches I've tried to see, and other space things I've done. Yeah, I was going to say, sort of, has this been ex as exciting as other missions you guys have covered as a whole? I mean, you know, we're all just still getting over Rosetta. I've got uh, Lizzie came back with a little bunch of stickers, and I've put one of them on my water uh, container here to compare with Pluto. That's it. They were both real firsts. Like, we've never been that close, had that kind of view of a comet before. There's such unknown objects that are, you know, you know, leftovers from right at the beginning of the solar system's formation. Um, and I guess, you know, similarly, Pluto has just been this blurry blob really far away. And actually, this is the first time we're getting these amazing pictures and data coming back. We should have a, um, you know, sort of Pluto versus Comet 67P fact off. Uh, maybe, Richard, you could be the judge. Uh, maybe you could give me both your most favourite fact about each body. Well, I mean, uh, hmm. I would say that the fact that it's not really a fact, but it's a rubber duck shape. Come on. That was great. Again, from, from far away, we had absolutely no idea. It was just modelled as being like this boring space potato, and it turned out to be a rubber duck. Good elevator pitch. 
Space potato. Uh, Alex, what, what's your favourite Pluto fact? Well, I see your rubber duck and I'll raise you a heart, okay? So Pluto has a heart, um, which, again, is just what we see in it, like we see the man in the moon. But, I mean, how can you, how can you go wrong with that? The, the, the world, which is the most recently discovered planet, which then was no longer a planet, which is this tiny body out there that everybody feels sorry for because it got booted from being a proper planet, turns out to have a heart after all. Real emotional pull there, Richard. Oof. Well, all I'm thinking about is a range of um, planetary and cometary bath products. <laughs> You've got the different planets, that, you know, those orbs that release uh, bath, bath salts, bombs. and the rubber duck comet as well. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's what those questions raised in my mind. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, do, I do like the heart, although it does also like, look like Pluto the dog in silhouette, as, as many people raised on Twitter very aptly. Does it? Yes, I think you can see the, the nose out to the right where the heart sort of fragments a bit into the terrain. Oh, Very clear I see for me. Now. Yeah. It's like looking at a magic eye. I'm going to have to stare at it for a bit longer before that happens to be, I think. Um, but I'm glad that we managed to commercialise these two, uh, frankly, completely uncommercialised ventures until now. But now we have a range of bath products. And is there any idea how long its batteries will last? Will it be like Voyager and just kind of keep going out of the solar system? It will. It doesn't have quite as much plutonium power as Voyager did. So Voyager still is occasionally bleeping back to us. Um, of course, that launched in the 19, uh, those two spacecraft launched in the 1970s and are still going. So New Horizons has less plutonium, but it's probably going to last through about the 2030s. By which point we will have developed a, a full department store range of Bed Bath & Beyond Pluto-based products. So watch out for the catalogue. On to our... Second story, and if Pluto's awe and wonder don't inspire you to learn more about science, I don't know what will. The next story is about science education, how people learn about science in the first place. Uh, and Nature ran a special on the science of science education, um, primary school science, and of course undergrad science, which we all probably remember dimly. Um, Lizzie, you've been taking a look at what's in the special. Yeah, so one of the big focuses was on a change that's been happening and perhaps should be happening a bit more in science education, which is a shift from the idea of passive learning, which is kind of probably what most of us went through, which is sitting in a lecture hall and having someone talk to you and tell you the facts, um, and then you get examined on it, to something called active learning, which the idea is that you actually engage with the subject matter. And by spinning it around in your head a little bit more and asking questions about it, it ends up sticking a bit better. So um, some of the examples in the feature that we've got uh, in the magazine are a virology course that kind of sets up a real outbreak scenario and you have to ID the pathogen and track it and figure out how to contain it. Or in other, in other ways, it's a lot more simple. You might have clickers that everyone in a lecture theatre has. To prove they're still awake. <laughs> well, it, would, it doubles up with that function. But it kind of you get asked a question, which is not really a very straightforward question. Like the example um, in the feature is if what happens if an alien zaps the sensory neurons in your leg? What is the outcome for you? Like, is there no change? Can you walk? Does it change your pace? Or, or can you still walk, but it's clumsy? And it kind of gets you to use everything that you've been hopefully taught, but um, actually apply it. All, all of this is already kind of proven students get 20% better grades um, and a lot fewer drop out of the science courses. Um, and so this line in the feature is that at this point it's unethical to teach in any other way. But it's very hard to measure quality teaching, isn't it? Yeah. You, you can measure the quality of research well. You can you can try and do it. <laughs> so it's difficult. That's a whole other podcast. And I wonder if there's some, <laughs> if some of the resistance to active learning, apart from the effort it takes to prepare the course, is kind of a feeling that, well, you know, these students are adults and it's up to them to pay attention 
And if they truly want to engage with the subject matter, they will ask themselves questions and they will kind of think these things through themselves. And if they don't, they don't, you know, yeah, but it's, then you it's might, not about... There might be so many potentially fantastic scientists of the future who never mm. make it to that stage because this just isn't the kind of learning for them and it doesn't appeal and it doesn't break through that. And we might be missing out on this huge talent pool. So we've been talking about mostly undergrads, university education, but there's another feature in the special that looks at younger age kids, primary school age. Richard, any thoughts on how that sort of teaching could change? Again, it's um, this idea of um, active learning and, and uncertain endpoints and allowing the children themselves to take charge of the scientific question. There's a great example of a preschool of one five-year-old arguing that more water drops could collect on a euro coin than on a slightly larger 50 cent piece because the euro coin buys more. And he and his classmates counted how many drops they could dribble onto the coin's surfaces and didn't come to a definitive answer. (laughs) But the, the teacher says that's okay because the idea at that age is to spark questions and this this conviction that they can be rationally explored. I, I remember being outraged at the idea that it was a question saying what weighs more a kilogram of feathers or a kilogram of lead or whatever it was. And I just remember being, well, it's the lead. It has to be. It has to be. It can't be the feathers. But yeah, that kind of that kind of question. Kids should be able to say, and another example is that shaking trees makes wind. I think it's lovely. But it must be hard in the teacher's position not to say, oh, actually, this mm. is what we know and have mm. established is the, mm. is the truth. I remember having a feeling at school that all you did was experiments where you knew what the correct result should be and you knew that your results should drop nicely around that and you could draw a line and the average was the answer. Richard Van Orden, did you massage your data at school? <laughs> I did I did not. Good. I, I'm not going to admit that Just on this checking. podcast. <laughs> but it was, you know, it was quite boring and it was quite limited and you didn't get that thrill of the unknown, which you do get with these questions that you're defining yourself, like how much water can fit on a Euro coin. I mean, that's... That's your own question. The problem is, is just about time, isn't it? Like, you always want to be able to do these kind of things, but ultimately you're going to have exams and kids need to know information for exams and all the different schools, at least in the UK, get measured on how many students get certain grades at this level. And so I think teachers are under such a huge amount of pressure that they just want to keep up. And isn't it a shame that most people don't learn about Pluto by having the lovely Alex Witsey tell them all about it? Whereas, you know, I might be an astronomer by now if that had happened to me <laughs> 10 years ago. Um, now, if we move on, uh, we're, going, we're moving in the direction of space again to a slightly crazier corner of space. I'm just going to put that out there. Um, our third story is about Yuri Milner, who's a Russian billionaire who, who really, really wants to keep listening for aliens, which is not something we've been doing very much uh, since the 60s, frankly. Um, Richard, is this a crazy idea or a shrewd investment? I don't see how it can be an investment. He seems to be doing it just because uh, he wants to. Uh, he he kind of jokes that... Um, he was born in 1961 and, and was named after Yuri Gagarin, the cosmonaut, and that's when his fascination with space and the possibility of alien life began. And he's he's bankrolling this thing with $100 million over 10 years, made all his money from Facebook and other internet businesses, and he's already established lucrative breakthrough prizes for physics, mathematics, life sciences. $3 million these prizes are, so outshining the Nobels and trying to turn... Um, physicists and biologists into glamour Oscar superstars. But this is actually a massive injection of funding for this community, SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, uh, which obviously hasn't heard anything yet since it started in the 60s. But Milner did say to us, and I think this is quite 
quite nice at the end of our piece. He said, oh, it's quite likely that we won't find anything. But maybe in 10 years' time, there'll be more advances. We can work out the best strategy for the next 10 years of the project, he said. So he's clearly thinking about this as a, a long-term question of, is there anybody out there? You have to try, don't you? It's highly unlikely that we will hear back, but what if we're not looking? Might as well throw your small change at it. You know, I think it'd be great if more billionaires did more similar things, maybe in other fields as well. He does seem, you know, like a scientific optimist, but has anyone else done anything so rash as to give lots of money to SETI over the years? Yeah, actually, this Russian guy is not the only billionaire to give funds to SETI. I guess about a decade, decade or a half ago, um, Paul Allen, who co-founded Microsoft, uh, got very into SETI. And he gave, uh, I think it was on the order of a couple of tens of millions of dollars to build this Allen telescope array, which basically is a, a bunch of radio dishes up in Northern California that are being used also to listen to the cosmos. Will this money enable SETI scientists to look for different types of signals or will they continue to look as they have done so far for kind of signals of intelligent life who've made essentially radio uh, communications. You know, that was a really interesting thing about the announcement because there there's talks about different ways to do SETI. And it, it sounds like what Milner is funding is the traditional let's listen using the big radio telescopes uh, to do basically more of the same, but to, to, but to spend more of the time listening. There are alternate ideas. There's this whole push for things called active SETI, which is the notion that you should transmit signals intentionally to parts of the universe where you think there might be aliens. And that, that's been sort of a controversial notion because, you know, are you shouting in the jungle? Are you letting yourself be known to aliens who might not be particularly friendly? There's a whole range of ideas about how to talk to aliens. How would we hear from them? Should we call them or do we wait for them to call us? So for the moment, aliens, call us because we won't call Please you. Please do, if you're listening. Now, finally, um, a cute little story that I like very much. Um, this week, July the 20th, NASA launched a mission to an, a really, really far away destination, 19 metres below the sea, just off the coast of Florida. Sounds like a holiday. Anyone want to elaborate? Yeah, we could talk about this. It's a, um, this place is called Aquarius. It's basically like a big underwater trailer off the Florida Keys. And um, NASA uses it as kind of a, a way to try and train their astronauts for what it's like to live off planet. Now, it's not like they're snorkeling outside this habitat. Essentially, they're inside. And if they go outside, they've got to suit up in their spacesuits or their wetsuits, their scuba gear, and go outside and then come back in. And they, they do a radio transmit delay. So when they call to mission control, they're delaying them as if they were on Mars or somewhere else in deep space. And the whole idea is to kind of simulate what happens um, if, you're, if you're living somewhere off Earth and just dunking them underwater turns out to be a pretty good way to uh, to get them uh, that kind of alien environment. They've got some lovely pictures on the NASA NEMO website, and NEMO is NASA Extreme Environment Mission Operations, uh, of them sort of, I think they call it translating, basically finding their way across the sea floor. The, the view is supreme. They don't need to like navigate their way around. There's some coral in the foreground of this photo, but there they are with their compasses, kind of pieces of string, like mapping across, and then the caption says, just like it would be on a comet. <laughs> Just like it would be. Nice. This is so Only similar. they'd found that much water on 67P. Exactly. <laughs> but it does look quite fun. They're only down there for two weeks, so I guess how how much like a comet can it really be? But, I mean, wasn't there this uh, Mars seclusion mission where... Yeah, the Mars 500 programme. Where they just uh, stayed cooped up in this little house for 500 days and played video games and went to the gym. 
I'm not quite sure what's yeah, coming Yeah, there's back. a lot of analogs that they do. They've yeah. had expeditions to the slopes of Hawaii, to up to Arctic islands, to the, the desert of Utah. They've had seclusion, yes, in a lab in, in France. There have been lots of these types of mimic missions. They do some pretty robust kind of science as well, don't they, on sleep patterns and how they might vary if you lock yourself in a shipping container near Moscow for 500 days. Um, I mean, these kinds of trips would affect psychological well-being quite severely, wouldn't they? And I suppose they are studying aspects of human physiology and psychology underwater or wherever they are. Sure. In, t- in two weeks, you can't get too far down the road into sort of psychological isolation because there isn't just that much time to, to slightly go bonkers underwater. But but the notion of dealing with the stress and, and dealing with the difficulties in communication is very much meant to, to reflect what might happen if you were out in space instead. And, and I did just want to point out that these, these guys are underwater and the astronaut who's leading it is the European astronaut Luca Parmitano. And he was on the International Space Station a couple of years ago, and he's kind of famous for having one of the, the, the nastiest spacewalks ever, where he was out floating in orbit outside the space station, and his helmet actually started to fill up with water. There was a problem with his, his tank and so on. So so now Parmitana, who almost drowned in space, literally, is going underwater again to try and figure out what it's like to, to live in space. I find that kind of a very interesting contrast. Crazy. He needs to get an air bubble in his suit, then it would be the exact opposite. I feel like, Alex, you've just written a Hollywood screenplay there. Definitely Matt Damon in that one. Matt Damon. Yes. <laughs> oh, I can't wait for him to get stuck on another hostile planet. Oh, my God. I can't wait. Um, can you guys see yourself signing up to go into space? What would stop you if uh, if you're not up for it? I don't think I'd do one of these one-way mission to Mars things that, that lots of people seem very keen to do. I mean, I, I get it in terms of pioneering first people on Mars. Yay, but I'm not sure it's for me. It just seems like... You leave a lot at home. But I would love to go into space onto the International Space Station. Um, in fact, I just came back from the UK Space 2015 conference last week and they had Tim Peake who was talking from um, from Kazakhstan where he's in quarantine at the moment because he's standby for the next mission that's going up there. Um, and he was just you know talking about daily life there and you've got, to, you've got to exercise for like two and a half hours a day or something just to stop yourself from wasting away. Oh, and I'm out. <laughs> and just like, you know, obviously conducting science experiments all the time and um, so it's a very very hard life but I think that would be fantastic I'm, I'm, I'm available for that if, if they need me I've imagined the situation to be not unlike being on a sort of British Airways flight and unfortunately I found out once that I'm not tall enough to be cabin crew because I wouldn't be able to reach all the overhead lockers and things to get the emergency, whatever it is. You can tell how much I re- researched this process. But I think for the same reason, I probably wouldn't be allowed to go into space because they build the capsules, you know, for people of average height. Although without gravity, I could just float. So yeah, maybe you could just fine. float up there. It'd be fine. You could re- imagine all the shelves you could now reach. Oh, that'd be amazing. Unexpected Benefits of Going Into Space by Kerry Smith. Um... All right. Um, actually, actually, guys. Oh, uh, this is Noah Baker, our producer, butting in here. Hi. So I did hear a little while ago, it may be a bit of an urban myth, but that there is a female scientist who at the moment is on her way to the space station or will be going to the space station who has had to have a special alarm designed for her suit in case she gets stuck in the space station and can't touch any of the walls. So she has to pull this little alarm to have someone come along and give her a little push. In case you get stuck in the middle without anything to grab onto. That's incredible. Well, maybe my, it's a legit concern then. Because yeah. she has to have an alarm because she's so small. Yeah. Couldn't she just blow? Couldn't you throw <laughs> something? As long as you could have something you could jettison. Wouldn't so that work? Like a jetpack so she could... Yeah. <laughs> Sold to the lady with the jetpack. Yeah. 
This is a lot to go through to put her in space. I mean, you know, they they can't. You can't be a pilot if you're sort of if your eyesight isn't perfect. And it surprises me that they let her go into space if she's too short. I mean, how about you, listeners? Why don't you submit us your pictures to go into space to podcast at nature.com? We have, of course, absolutely no power to make your dream happen, but we would like to know about it nonetheless. Um, thank you for listening. Thanks to Alex Whitsey, Lizzie Gibney and Richard Van Norden for doing the talking. For more of their work, check out nature.com slash news or keep an eye on the at Nature News Twitter feed for updates. We're also all on Twitter. Uh, Lizzie, what's your handle? At Lizzie Gibney. Richard? At Rich VN. And Alex? I'm at Alex Witze, A-L-E-X-W-I-T-Z-E. And I'm Minnie Kerry. Come find us on Twitter or email us, podcast at nature.com. And listen in. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Next time.